0: Holy Father, we ask that you be with us now by your grace. Lift us up and elevate us so that we may know your truth, may love your truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> we will now consider this evening, or uh, uh, back to in Christology, last time we were together, we considered how the Holy Trinity indwells the believer, and that is by knowledge and by love. Uh, essentially, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. We can attribute faith to the Son, and we can attribute... Hope and love to the Holy Spirit. And very similarly, how we talked about um, uh, this effectual calling by the Holy Spirit. Um, yes, it is the Holy Spirit that works faith in us. Um, but that faith that is within us um comes from the Word Himself. Uh, many medieval theologians talk about it is Jesus Christ who preaches into the soul. Uh, and we say amen, amen, to that that preaching. Uh, when we believe upon Christ by faith, um, and we continue to ask God to help us uh, and unite us to his triune self <clears throat> in knowledge and, and love this evening now we 're going to talk about uh something that 's i 'm sure very uh very very d- uh, different and might be weird to many of you, something that i 'm sure. Most of you have never heard before uh, a doctrine that most of you have never heard before. Um, so, again, saying just because you might have not heard it before or it might be a little difficult to understand, which is not. It's not difficult at all. Um, in fact, I think you're going to say at the end, oh, that actually makes sense of what the word of God says. Before we start, though, let's have a word on Catholicity. Catholicity. Uh, what does that mean? Catholicity. What does it mean, saints, to be Catholic? What does it mean to be Catholic? Now, many of you might think, well, it means for us to uh, believe in the celebration of the Mass. It means for us to believe that the Pope is the successor of Peter. It means for us to believe the things that the Roman Catholic Church believes. Uh, that's what it means to be Catholic. Um, and historically, friends, uh, that's not what the word means, but also that's not what our Reformed tradition uh, and also, you can add Lutheran tradition. Talk or define what it means to be Catholic. Uh, to be to to to, uh, to be Catholic, small c, doesn't mean to hold on to uh, the celebration of the Mass. It doesn't mean that we believe that the Pope is the successor of Peter. It doesn't mean that we hold on to any of the doctrines uh, that the Roman Catholic Church holds on to. But to be Catholic means to engage and believe in the entirety of the Catholic or universal slash historical Christian tradition. Again, to be Catholic means to hold on to the universal or historical truths that the church has always held on to. So are you Catholic? Small c, yes. You are Catholic. In fact, if you were to say, I'm not Catholic, small c, then you would be an error or a heretic. All of us, each and every one of us, if we believe in the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, you're Catholic. If you believe that Jesus Christ is one person with two natures, you're Catholic. Uh, And many of the essential truths of the Christian faith. One theologian said, uh, reform Catholics desire continuity with ancient Catholic tradition where it is possible. And that's a big caveat there. Where it is possible for us to hold on to the ancient truths of the Christian faith. In other words, where it is possible to hold on to what Athanasius said, what... Cyril of Alexandria said what the three Cappadocians said, uh, Augustine, Aquinas, all these great theologians of the past, where it is possible for us to hold on to and hold hands with them, we hold hands with them. And he says, especially with its conciliar teaching on God and Christ. And honestly, saints, we hold hands with Roman Catholics. We hold hands with Eastern Orthodox. We hold hands with Lutherans, with Anglicans. When it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, when it comes to the doctrine of the person of Christ, we stand side by side with Roman Catholics. We stand side by side with Eastern Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, Christians uh, because they hold on to a proper uh, Trinitarian theology. They hold on to a proper Christology. Right now, the implications of Christology might be a little off, but who Christ is and who God is quite frankly, you're not going to find anyone better uh, than Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox or even Lutherans for that matter. So we hold on to uh, the essential truth with them, certain essential truths, but it's not just merely us holding on to essential truths um, with the ancient uh, Catholic tradition that we are, you know, trying to uphold, but it's also the non-essential, if you want to call them non-essential truths of the Christian faith that we are to look for in the uh, church fathers and those after. And in my studies, uh, Reformed Christians have done a pretty horrible job in trying to uphold uh, many of the truths that the church fathers and medieval theologians have held throughout the church. Specifically this evening, I would say Reformed Christians... They typically reject an ancient teaching on the identity of the church, which has expressed the Catholic Church's self-understanding for hundreds of years. Again, Catholic is that is to say, small c, universal historical church. What the church has always said concerning the nature and identity of the church and its relationship to Jesus Christ. And this teaching is called Totus Christus. Totus Christus, T O. T-U-S, Christus, Christ, and add a U-S at the end. This is Latin for the whole Christ. The whole Christ. Now, there are reasons why the Reformed uh, typically reject the totus Christus. In fact, if you were to look up on Google totus Christus, search it, you're going to find uh, predominantly uh, Roman Catholics talking about it. Because it is a Roman Catholic... Um, um, the Roman Catholics use it a lot more than the Reform do, uh, to speak of the relationship between Christ and the Church. Now, what Roman Catholics do is something, and it is a big error that many of the Reform do, and that is this. Roman Catholics take a doctrine, and they take it to a place where it doesn't need to go. Now, should we throw out the baby with the bathwater? Should we, in other words, should we uh, say, well, I don't like the ending point of where this doctrine leads, so I'm going to hold off uh, and, and reject the doctrine entirely. No, we don't do that. In fact, we can hold on to uh, a doctrine without expressing and holding on to the ending point and what it leads to, okay? And you're going to see that this evening. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, believes that the church is the continual incarnation of jesus christ that is where their totus christus doctrine leads them okay but we don't have to believe that the church is the ongoing incarnation of jesus christ in order to hold on to this doctrine of the totus christus i hope you guys are kind of understanding what i'm saying there are many things that we can say amen to um, that the church fathers i say had men to that others have taken to a place where it doesn't need to go okay And that's where, essentially, the gist of what I'm saying. What is the relationship between Christ and the church? What is the relationship between Christ and the church? The Bible describes our relationship with Christ in many ways, does it not? It's one of a bride to a groom. We all love the the wonderful marriage um, bond that's between us and our Savior. A king and his servants. A shepherd and his sheep. But this evening, we want to look at another important um, union that the Bible puts forth, and that is the totus Christus doctrine, the totus Christus doctrine. How do we define totus Christus? How do we define totus Christus? One theologian says totus Christus, which is the whole Christ, denotes a spiritual union between Christ and the church so that out of the two, one spiritual entity, head and members, comes to be. The union is spiritual because the Holy Spirit brings it about. Again, this is more of a formal definition. Totus Christus denotes a spiritual union between Jesus Christ and the church so that out of the two, one spiritual entity, head and members, comes to be. The spirit, the union is spiritual because the Holy Spirit brings it About Um, in plain words, Christ, Jesus Christ has formed a mystical union with his church so that they are now one spiritual entity, spiritual in bold letters, spiritual entity, the church and Christ form the whole Christ. The church and Christ form the whole Christ, which is, in Latin, the totus Christus. Um, One last thing on Catholicity. I remember R.C. Sproul saying, "I, I accept everything Catholic, but not everything Roman. That's kind of a great way to put it, right? I accept everything Catholic, but not everything Roman. Not everything Roman Catholic. Now, upon and if you have more questions on that, we can talk about that after service. Now, upon that hearing of that that definition, okay, that Christ has formed a middle school union with his church so that we are now one spiritual entity, what should jump out to us is this question. What do we mean by spiritual union? What type of union is this? What type of a union is a spiritual union? Spiritual union. What does that mean? Okay. What does that mean? First, let's consider what the totus Christus doctrine doesn't mean and a large majority of reformed christians don't accept the totus christus doctrine because of these um, these uh uh explanations of what it doesn't mean okay according to scripture christ and the church head and members form the totus christus that is one perfect man but this union with christ doesn't mean the following so what does it doesn't mean number 1 Christ and the church are not united as one in the same way that Christ's two natures are united in his person. Again, Christ, Jesus Christ and the church are not united as one in the same exact way Christ's two natures are united in his one person. Does that make sense? In other words, we can't say Jesus Christ's union with the church is not uh, we can't say, or we can't say, yeah, that Jesus Christ's union with the church um, is the same kind of union as the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union is simply the eternal Son's assumption of a human nature. So what we have in Jesus Christ now is one person in two natures. He is truly God, truly man. OK? The eternal sum- Son's assumption of a human nature is unique. And non-repeatable. It's something that can never and will never happen again. Since the totus Christus is not the hypostatic union, things that are true of Christ are not necessarily true of the church at this present time, but will be in the future. Again, things in this present age that are true of Christ are not true of the church. Let me give you an example. The church is peccable Christ is impeccable, right? The church has the ability to sin. Christ does not have the ability to sin. That is one big distinction there. However, one day you will be impeccable. Uh, one day you will, uh, as Dustin so beautifully said this morning, one day uh, you will be able to... Uh, lie down with, you know, the cobras or whatever. Uh, and there there will be no threats of sin, right? Not because you're in heaven per se, but because you've been elevated to such a place where you cannot sin, right? Um, we can talk about that later. But Christ is, not, is sinless. The church is not sinless. Now, in order for Christ and the church, or in order for the church to be sinless the way Christ is to be sinless... It would mean that the church and Christ are to be numerically one. The church and Christ are not numerically one. They're not numerically one. They're spiritually one, but they're not numerically one. And we'll talk a little bit about that more. Secondly, Christ and the church are not united in the same way the son is united to the father and the spirit. Church, the church. And now, again, I'm saying that the church is united with Christ. But I'm just hammering out what it, what is this union? Uh, not mean. And this union doesn't mean that we're united to Christ in the same way the eternal Son is united to the Father and the Spirit. Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son, is united to the Father and the Spirit by way of essence. By way of essence. That is to say, the Son and the Father and the Spirit all share that one divine essence. Just as you and I all share the same common essence, what is that? Humanity. What it means for you to be human, uh, I share with you. Well, likely, or, or similarly, what it means to be God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share. Theologians have called this a substantial unity amongst the three persons of the Trinity. There's a substantial unity. Um, they share in substance, okay? In essence, what it means to be God, okay? So with this point, the second point, um, What I'm basically saying is the church doesn't become God by way of their union with Christ. The church doesn't become the fourth member of the Trinity because of their union with Christ. And I hope you don't think and I want you to reject in your mind any sort of idea that the church becomes the fourth member of the Trinity. That's not what this union means between us and Christ. Thirdly, totus Christus doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is incomplete with his spiritual union uh uh, to the church, "Todis Christus" doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is incomplete without his spiritual union to the church. In other words, since Jesus is the head and we are the body, think of that analogy here. Um, we would be incomplete, and, and this is why the resurrection physically is so important, right? Uh, because um, the soul isn't to be apart from the body. The head isn't meant to be apart from the uh, the body. Since Jesus Christ is the head and we are the body, we want to think that Jesus Christ needs the body of the church in order to be complete. Again, Jesus Christ doesn't need the church in order for him to be complete. Jesus Christ is complete and perfect as the whole Christ without the church. Jesus Christ doesn't need the church in order to be. However, Jesus Christ has willed to unite us to himself in the economy of salvation. This is an act of divine condescension. It's an act of grace by which Jesus Christ unites himself to us, not because he needs us, but really for our benefit. The head and the body are one Christ. Not because he is not complete without the body, but because he's decreed to be complete with us. Again, not because he is incomplete without us, but because he has chose to Be complete with us. Again, saints, Christ is ontologically complete without us. He does not need us to exist. Yet out of sheer love, he has united himself to us, the church, so that we are the totus Christus or the whole Christ with him. The whole Christ. So the totus Christus doctrine teaches that the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ, not in a hypostatic unity or by way of the unity of the Trinity, But by a mystical or spiritual union. By a mystical or spiritual union. What does mystical mean? Mysterious. I honestly, if you press me hard enough, I cannot describe to you the full depths of this union between us and Christ. It exists though, because the Bible speaks about it. But there is a mysterious union between us in jesus christ that's not like any other union that we can think of um by grace we are united with our savior jesus christ and it's important to note saying that this union results not in a simply a community of persons interested in christ it doesn't mean that we now collectively each individually come to church because we're interested in jesus christ um if you remember Pastor Antonio's sermons that he preached uh, uh, a couple of months ago, also his, the, the, the sermon that he preached when we were at um, um, our quarterly gathering of, of us being united as one. Uh, the Bible speaks of our union as if I am in you and you are in me. Like we are together, united, right? Um, well, when we think of the totus Christus doctrine... Um, it's not a, a corporation of individuals, uh, but rather it's a body of believers that are really united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. Okay. And this, friends, is what the history of the church has taught. Now, here's where our Catholicity comes into play. The Reformed tradition has spoke of the totus Christus doctrine. In fact, I heard of a, uh, one pastor. I wish, I wish pastors would do more research before they start opening their mouths and talking about how we can't re- how accept certain truths because Roman Catholics believe it. You know? Um, he said that, well, we can't hold on to this because our Reformed tradition understood the distinction between the Totus Christus Doctrine and what's called uh, the mystical union of believers to Christ. Um, but friends, it's, it's not one and the same thing, but it's almost as if it's one and the same thing, okay? The Reformed do not hold on to the ending points of what Rome believes, but rather they hold on to what the doctrine says as a whole without the ending point. Let me give you an example. John Owen, who is probably the greatest Reformed theologian who's ever existed, says this, For Christ and believers are neither one natural person nor a legal or political person, nor any such person as the laws, customs, or usages of men do, know, or allow of. They are one mystical person. John Owen, one mystical person. Francis Tiriton, another great Reformed scholastic, calls the church a holy society and a mystical body, embracing all the elect united to the bond of the same spirit, faith, and love with each other and with Christ. William Ames, this church is mystically one, not in a generic sense, but as a unique species or individual, for it has no species in the true sense. And then Ames would go on to speak of Christ being in the church and the church in Christ. John Davenant, one of the the best Reformed theologians uh, ever, John Davenant says Christ and all his members constitute one mystic person in his in his Colossians commentary. And if you're into buying commentaries, his Colossians commentary is probably the greatest commentary on Colossians that's ever been pinned. Um, in fact, that's what John Owen says. So we see from many of the reformed mind you reformed, not Roman Catholics, reformed have spoken of the, the relationship between Jesus Christ and. And the church as the head to the body which makes up one person, as the head to the body which makes up one person. There is a mystical, a mysterious union that exists between Jesus Christ and His church. And Saints, these reformed Christians are not just saying things to say it, but rather they're only echoing that which those who said before them. Let me give you two examples, um, and probably the two greatest thinkers that God has ever given to the church. Uh, Augustine says this Indeed head and body are one christ Not be, uh, not because he is not complete without the body But because he uh designed to be complete with us He uh, he who without us is always complete Uh, not only in that he is the word the only begotten son equal to the father But also in the man himself that took on and with which he is god and man together Augustine says this thomas aquinas says, head and members form as it were one and the same mystical person. So what we see is the Reformed tradition, reading Thomas Aquinas, a medieval theologian, reading Augustine, who we can probably attribute um, much of our Western thinking to, right? Outside of those who pen scripture, they're echoing these men. And they're amening what these men are saying. Now, where does the Bible talk about? Which is... The primary (laughs) source. What does the Bible say? We know that the reform talk about it. We know that the history of the church talks about this mystical union between us and Christ. Where is it in the Bible? Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And I normally don't do this, but I want you to see it for yourself. Um, Or if you're really good at listening, you can do that as well. Matthew chapter 25. We'll be in verses 31 through 45. And I just have three texts I want us to consider. Matthew 25. I'll begin in verse 31 and end in verse 45. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit down on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a sheep separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of these, least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Apart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me uh, me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison and you did not look after me. Then they will also, uh, will answer, Lord, when did, uh, when did you, we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison? and did not help you. Verse 45, he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now the question is, who are the least of these that Jesus is speaking of in verse 45? Who are the least of these? Again, the text reads, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these you did not do for me. It's as if there's a community of people, right, who are the the sheep. Jesus is standing in the middle and saying, what you did not do for the sheep, you did not do for me. What we see is Christ is linking himself to the sheep. He's linking himself to the sheep. In essence, Jesus is saying, whatever you didn't do, To them, you didn't do for me. Whatever you didn't do for them, you didn't do for me. So again, back to the question, who are the least of these that Jesus is speaking of in verse 45? Well, the text gives us the answer in verse 40. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Many want to interpret this as just the common poor. Those, you know, uh, God has a, 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 you know, a generic love for all. And whatever you didn't do for the poor, because he loves the poor, you did for me. Well, that's not what the text says. Jesus Christ here identifies those on the right. Those whom he is speaking of that are the least of these. Those are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. In essence, what we see is the least of these in verse 45 are Christians. They are believers. They are people like you and I. Here Jesus is comparing service and here is the totus Christus doctrine. The whole Christ doctrine. Christ and us are one. Here Jesus is comparing service to fellow believers with service to him. Why? Because Jesus and the church Are the totus Christus, or the whole Christ. They are one mystical person. Whatever one does to the church and the members of the church, they also do to Christ. Or we can say, whatever happens to the body affects the head. And this point is further enhanced by our Lord's words in verses 35 to 39. And saints, notice how Christ is equating, again, what happens to the church happens to him. For hours, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. He has these long lists of things. When he was in need, you did for me. Again, and then in verse 39, these sheep are telling Christ, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't physically give you food though, Christ. I didn't physically invite you in. I, in fact, I probably, I've never met you personally. So how can I do something for you without physically, and rather, without you physically being present? It doesn't make any sense, right? Because whatever you do to the church, you do to Christ. Whatever happens to the church happens to Jesus Christ in a qualified way of sure. But this text here plainly teaches that the church and Christ Make up one mystic person, one mysterious person. Let me give you another text. The second text, Colossians one twenty four. If you would turn there, one twenty four, Colossians chapter one, verse twenty four. Verse twenty four says this: The apostle Paul. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am supplementing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. In behalf of his body, which is the church. Now, this is a very controversial verse, just taken at face value. I mean, if we were just reading it without any sort of um, supporting commentary, we would say, Paul, what in the wor- world are you saying? You sound like a heretic. Does he not? Again, look what Paul says. In my flesh, here it is, I am supplementing. Uh, older translations would say I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in behalf of his body. So the big question concerning verse 24, specifically the supplementing part is this. Is Paul saying that the sufferings of Christ are insufficient? And that we need to add to his sufferings? Because at face value, it does seem that that's what he's saying. It does seem like that's what he's saying. Saints, do we add to the unfinished work of Jesus Christ? Does our sufferings unite itself with the one suffering at Calvary? Well, yes and no. No, Paul, of course, is not saying that our suffering adds anything to the work of Christ. sin paul's not saying that we add one ounce of our sufferings to the sufferings of christ so that we can be freed from sin that's not what paul's saying jesus christ has paid the full price of sin and as hebrews 7 says he did this once for all time and when he offered himself up so what does paul mean when he's saying he is supplementing or filling up what is lacking in christ's afflictions the answer is the totus Christus. The answer is the whole Christ. Consider what John Davenant says in his twofold explanation. Now, as to the first question, the sufferings of Paul and all true believers are called the sufferings of Christ himself on two accounts. Number one, because of the mystical union that subsists between the head and the members in respect of which not only the head but the whole body of the church is comprised under the name of Christ. Hear what Davenant is saying? Again, the head and the members, because of this union, mystical union, are comprised under the name Christ. For in which expression the term Christ denotes both head and itself, and the church united to its head. Now it is customary, and this is important, and I will we'll break this down right now. Now it is customary for everyone to attribute to himself those injuries which are afflicted upon any part of his body, Thus, wounds of the hand or foot are properly said to be wounds of the man himself. And it is usual for him to exclaim that he is wounded in the hand or in the foot. So also in the same manner, the apostle, because he himself is a member of body of Christ, calls his afflictions, the afflictions of Christ. Because the church and Christ constitute one mystical person. Again, what example... What What is David saying? Let's think about this. When he talks about... Um, um, uh, it is customary for everyone to attribute to himself those injuries which are afflicted upon any part of his body to the whole body. If you were to stub your toe, does your toe begin to have words and scream out, ouch, everyone look down, I have stubbed my toe. No. What happens to the foot affects the whole body to where what happens to the foot, it reaches to the top and the head screams, ouch, I've stubbed my foot, right? I mean, unless you have toes that speak. But normally for normal people, right? The natural order of things is that whatever happens to one part of the body infects the whole body. When I had COVID, what infected one part of my Organs affected the entirety of my body. When you have a fever, right? Uh, uh, When you injure your pinky, it affects everything. You can't do certain things. So again, when the toe is injured, it is the head that cries out. It is the head that speaks. Likewise, our sufferings here on earth can properly be called Christ's sufferings. Jesus Christ's sufferings. Just as one Christian hurts, and all of us are affected by that hurting. When the body is afflicted, the head screams out. When the body, the church, is afflicted, the head also screams out affliction. Any Christian, therefore, may said to be fill up or supplement that which remains of the sufferings of Christ not that Christ or we are adding to the sufferings of Christ but because simply what happens to us happens to our lord because we are united to him the sufferings of Christ then are taken in a twofold sense again distinctions here are important and one for those which he actually sustained in his own body which nothing is to be added to that's one part of sufferings of Christ but the other part are those which he should sustain in his mystical body, even unto the end of the world. So Christ suffered in his body twofold, one at Calvary and a continual suffering in and through his mystical body, the church. Let's consider Davenant's second explanation of this verse. The second reason, because of the sympathy Christ feels in the afflictions of his members, And which is the result of the union spoken of before. For as we are accustomed to consider the privations and sufferings of those with whom we are most intimately connected as our own, because we are as much afflicted with their distresses as we should be by our own, so Christ accounts the sufferings of his brethren as his own, because he is not less affected by them than when we, than he himself suffered we can all say amen to this second explanation, can we not? How many of us can testify to the words of David when he says, For as we are accustomed to consider the privations and sufferings of those with whom we are intimately connected as our own. Do you have friends whom you love deeply? When they are hurting, it's as if you're hurting as well. If something was to happen to my mother... I would feel like I'm being hurt as well. Like, I I wish that I can take her pain away. Many of us have friends like that. When you're suffering, man, I'm going through it with you as well. This speaks of the, the union that we have with our friends, the intimate bond that we have with our family members. Well, friends, if we feel sympathy when those whom we love are afflicted, then how much more does Christ feel sympathy for his people? We are united to Christ in a, in a more intimate way than we are united to our family members and friends. We should have, Christ have sympathy more for us uh, than the greatest amount of sympathy that we would have when our friends and family members are afflicted because of this union that we have with Christ. John Gill says at this point, when, anyone, uh, when any of them, of them suffers, he suffers with them. As the sufferings of a part of the body are ascribed to the whole person. Again, Gill is saying exactly what we just said earlier. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. Is it merely just a Christian um, suffers on the account of another Christian? No. But when the head or whether when the arm suffers, the other arm suffers, but also the head suffers with the body. Gil says, and because of that sympathy there is between them, he has a fellow feeling with his people in all their infirmities, in all their afflictions, he is afflicted. And this is what the Bible speaks of, does it not? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we were, yet without sin. We have one who in solidarity with us Sympathizes with us, shows mercy and compassion towards us. Now it's important to note, Saints, that when I say Christ suffers with his people, um, Christ, it doesn't mean that Christ in heaven suffers in his people in the same way that he suffers here on earth. When he suffered here on earth as man. Okay. We aren't to think that Jesus Christ in heaven is suffering in the same way that he suffered on Calvary's cross. Okay? Christ does not suffer with the church in the same way that He suffered here on earth, because the church and Christ are not numerically identical. We do not Christ and the church, and I'll try to think of analogies all week for this. Christ and the church do not form Voltron or Bumblebee, right? Christ and the church are not this this. Um, When we get to heaven, it's not a really Christ has like this ginormous head and then he's going to gather all of us, all the Christians, and then, um, I don't know how, but unite the body to this ginormous head. And then we physically become one, like a transformer does. That's not the case at all. Friends, this is a spiritual union, mysterious union. So the sufferings between us and Christ is Jesus' suffering is in solidarity with us in the spirit. Since we are united to Christ by the spirit, Jesus suffers with his members and in their suffering on earth as the head of the body. And saints, the text that really brings this out is the last text that we will consider, and that is Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Acts chapter 9, verse 4, last text. In fact, if you're doing a... Proof texting of this doctrine, this is the main text everyone's gonna go to. Acts chapter 9 verse 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 for the context. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for the letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that he would, uh, so that if he found any belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them in shackles to Jerusalem. Now, as they were traveling, it happened that he was uh, approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and here's the text that proves, or I would say, the Totus Christus." And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" Again, to set the context, Paul is doing his deed of persecuting Christ's people. And Christ then appears to Saul. And he says these interesting words. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, isn't that interesting? Because Saul is not physically persecuting Jesus Christ. He's not Locking up Jesus Christ in shackles, releasing him, and then doing it again. He's not physically, uh, before this his his experience with uh Christ at Damascus, he's never met Christ. He's never physically encountered Jesus. But Jesus comes down and says, Saul, why are you doing these things to me? But Saul's doing them to the church, Christ's people how are we to understand this question from jesus to saul the totus christus doctrine because christ is united to us we can understand christ's question to saul in two ways first we can apply it to christ as the individual and also second it could be applied to us the members of his body and here in acts chapter four verse uh, chapter nine verse four jesus christ's words fall under both categories they refer to the sufferings of Christ himself, but also the sufferings of the members of Christ's body. So when Christ speaks to Saul, he's speaking to Saul on the behalf of the church. You see, friends, it is not merely Christ saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is a church through the words of Christ saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you afflicting the body? But it's spoken via the head just as when we talked about when the toe is stubbed the head speaks when the body's being afflicted the head steps up jesus christ and says why are you doing this to me the body the whole christ in closing saints this doctrine helps us read various verses of scripture but also makes sense of doctrine This totus Christus doctrine is merely just a hermeneutical tool for when we read scripture verses like Acts chapter nine, verse four, which doesn't make sense, right? I mean, Paul's never met Christ, but Christ is saying, why are you persecuting me? We can now apply this hermeneutical tool to this text and say, oh, that makes sense because the church and Christ are one mystical person. What affects the body affects the head, but also it helps us make sense of various doctrines as well. For example, how can Paul say in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above. Saints, have you been raised with Christ? No one yet has been raised with Christ physically. We're waiting that resurrection from the dead. But because when Christ was raised, the body, technically speaking, eschatologically, was raised. From the dead. In fact, saints, we can say at Christ's resurrection, two bodies were raised. At Christ's resurrection, two bodies were raised. The first body was Christ's physical body. And the second body was Christ's mystical body, the church. In an already not yet way. Yes, we haven't been physically raised. But Paul here is speaking as if we have been raised. Because at Christ's resurrection... Christ does not raise himself also uh, primarily, but he raises his body with him. We come with him out the grave, which will soon be actualized. Um, uh, The resurrection of Christ, then, is the resurrection of the totus Christus, is the resurrection of the whole Christ, us with Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul also talks about us being crucified with Christ, Right? And all these other uh, uh, ways in which we um, are united with Jesus Christ. But also for us saints. As we live in this world that continually throws afflictions our way. This totus Christus doctrine speaks to us. and, And says that Jesus is more present to the church. Than the church is to itself. That Jesus is more united to us. And we are united with one another. In the mode of grace, Christ is really present to the church. And this is wonderful news, is it not? For since Christ is mystically united to us in one body, he's therefore present in our afflictions and sufferings. We do have to think that Christ is distant from what we are going through, but he is really present with us in our pilgrimage on earth while in heaven. And this is the great promise that Christ gives, does it not? Remember what our Lord says, one of the final words that our Lord says to the disciples before his ascension. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Totus Christus doctrine brings this more out to light. That Christ is truly, really, mystically, spiritually united and with us. Let's pray.